All right, well, grab your Bibles, open them up to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, we're going to be doing sort of a truncated uh, Christmas series this year. Um, that's due to the fact that uh, it took us through halfway, uh, halfway through December uh, to finish up Proverbs. And so we sort of blew right past the beginning of what is usually Advent on the liturgical calendar, uh, which is fine. Um, because if you've been here for any length of time, you know we have never been a church that feels beholden to such traditions. Um, we certainly look to tradition for guidance, um, but it is not the meat of the gospel. It's not the part that cannot ever change. Um, now, this doesn't make them bad. I will say there are some people who want to find purity by sort of purging their lives of anything that is not ultimate. Uh, you know these people because they will assure you that every single thing that we do is somehow um, a pagan tradition, um, and basically you should never enjoy anything in life. Um, they push back and remove anything that is not directly sacred. Um, but we can't live a deleted life. Um, it is worth filling our life with flavor. Uh, but we need to make sure that what is secondary does not overshadow what is primary, which I think is a, something that we need to think about around Christmas. Um, this time of year has so many traditions, so many flavors, uh, that it's easy to be overwhelmed by all of them, right? And so we, we sit and we worry, did I have time to make grandma's famous cookies? Um, have I seen all the Christmas lights? Um, have I done all my shopping? Have I gotten the, the Christmas cards out? This is just my list. You have your own, I'm sure. Um, these are all good things, um, and I'm not here to tell you to get rid of all these additions. Again, this is, this is part of the goodness of life that God gave us to enjoy. However, it is worth asking um, if any of this is getting you closer to the Christmas spirit that you're looking for. Right? Has filling your schedule with things actually helped you to find fullness? Now, part of this comes from the fact that we have created a way of gauging value that is entirely dependent on us. And so we have become the source needed to instill Christmas with significance. So we have to come up with something clever every year. We have to find the ugliest sweater. We have to figure out what that elf is going to do the next day, right? There's all of these things that we need to do to create meaning. And the problem with this is none of us are powerful enough to give importance to Christmas. None of us are clever enough to come up with something new every day. You and I don't have the ability to do anything to make Christmas more than it is. You and I cannot overcome the sadness and frustration that this season is for many people. Now, the good news is we don't have to. It is big enough on its own. As a matter of fact, I would say the incarnation or God-made flesh, the event that Christmas commemorates, is the most mind-blowing act we could ever attempt to comprehend. And so rather than trying to remove the extras, we just need to spend more time in wonder. This is the guidance given to us by a pastor named James Boyce, one of his Christmas sermons. He, he was answering the question, how should we celebrate Christmas? And he said this, he said, begin by wondering. Wondering at the fact that you have not suffered the just punishment of your sin, that God has loved you. That Jesus came and died for you. That God called you to faith in himself when you were yet without hope of salvation. And that you are now God's child and secure in his love. Continue by thinking upon these things. Ponder the great doctrines of the Christian faith. Doctrines of the incarnation, atonement, grace, sanctification, heaven, perseverance, and others. So that you begin to grow strong in doctrine. Glorify and praise God for what you know. 
Sing his praises. And then when you have done all that you are qualified, when you have done that and are qualified to speak, go back and tell others. Right? The best way to celebrate Christmas is actually to focus on what Christmas is about. The only way to not get overwhelmed by all the stuff that is included in the season is for the biggest thing to become bigger. And so that's what we're going to do over the next three weeks. We're going to talk about the baby in the manger, but rather than just focusing on the narrative or the details of of the virgin birth or the prophecies, we're simply going to focus on how amazing it is that he was here at all and who exactly it was that was wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Um, And we're going to do this by looking at a verse or a section of Scripture that is not um, usually associated with Christmas. It's Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And so I'm going to start today by reading that whole section. This is the whole section that we're going to be going over for the next three weeks. And then I'm going to uh, focus in on the first part today. So Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, it says this. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, sorry, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, this section of Scripture is titled in most of your Bibles, The Preeminence of Christ. And since we don't use preeminence usually in everyday discourse, uh, it means superiority or, or first. The idea being that in order of importance, Jesus is first. When we put together how the world fits together, he is the first piece that must be placed. There's no way to make sense of the world we live in without Jesus as the cornerstone or first cause. Now, first cause is a philosophical term uh, to describe a starting point. When sort of all else has been doubted, what is the first thing that you put in to sort of build your worldview, to, to develop what can truly be known? And so when we say he is first, it's to say that Jesus does not come in later as something sort of that provides something we need. He is not an answer to a question that we arrive at. Instead, our whole existence is rooted in him. Understanding the world begins with knowing Him. He is preeminent, and we must keep Him preeminent in our worldview, or everything else gets muddled. Now, in the six verses we just read, Paul describes this preeminence with the use of three prepositional phrases. There's probably more prepositional phrases. We're going to look at three. Uh, Through Him, by Him, and in Him. And so for this series, we will be exploring each of these, beginning today with the idea that all things are created through him. That is, he is the means and the purpose by which this whole world exists. Jesus is a source of all things. And Paul begins this description by declaring that Jesus is the complete manifestation of God. Right? He says he is the image of the invisible God. As the image of the invisible God, Jesus makes understandable to us the complex nature of God. 
which is to say he's not just a picture of God, like something sort of distant and distinct, separate from God that represents him. No, Jesus is the the image of the invisible God. It means he embodies everything that it is to be God. And so when we look at Jesus, we not only see what God is like, we see God. And so in Jesus, that which is invisible is made visible, which is really, really helpful to our faith. Because when we try to make sense of God simply from the Old Testament, it can be quite difficult. Not because God doesn't reveal himself, not because he doesn't sort of show us who he is, but all of it comes from this very different perspective. He shows us that he is God. He shows us he is powerful and holy. We get glimpses of God's supremacy through might. But very often, human beings are on the receiving end of that might. Right? We get a great under, a idea, a great understanding of who God is, but in many ways, it's, it's foreign. And it can easily lead us to a fear-based idea of God. Because none of us can really imagine what it means to oversee the cosmos. We can't really identify with uh, issues like holiness or perfection. In the Old Testament, we see God conquer whole armies by himself, which is awesome, but not really the way that we experience things. But as Jesus comes into the world, he experiences life in a way that is a lot more relatable, a lot more the way that we experience it. The author of Hebrews points this out when he says in Hebrews 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect. One who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now we usually go to this text to point out that Jesus can understand us. He can sympathize with our weaknesses because he has experienced life as we do, which is true. But God doesn't need to be human to know what it is to be human. That is, God knows everything. He knows the world down to how many hairs are on our heads, some more than others, right? And it says in the Bible that not even a sparrow falls from the sky without him knowing about it. This isn't because he lived life as a sparrow, but because he's in control of all things. Which is to say, God didn't actually need to come to earth in order to understand us. We need it. We need to see this to be confident that he knows. We are the ones who need to be given confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. And God does this for us by becoming human. He passed through the heavens so that we can hold fast to our confession. He does this for us. And so we see here that Christmas is about God making himself known to us in a new way so that we can see him more fully. Now, this moment didn't just come about. This is why the whole Old Testament narrative is very important. This is what all creation has been working towards since the very beginning. And Paul develops this idea further when he says that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. 
Now, the concept of firstborn is a little bit lost on us because we don't treat the firstborn in the same way that they would have at this time period. Um, We don't give any special honor to the oldest in the family. As a matter of fact, if you're an oldest, you probably don't feel like you got a whole lot of honor at all. You just got more rules. Um, You were the one that your parents were trying stuff out on. Um, I'll just say, as as a middle child, thank you all the oldest children for kind of softening up the parents for us. But in Bible times, the, the, the firstborn was the heir to the inheritance. The oldest was, was seen as the most complete offspring of their fathers. It was in the firstborn that the father's legacy would be carried on. So when Jesus is re- referred to here as the firstborn of all creation, um, it's interesting because it's referring to his place in creation, but also above creation. Jesus, it says, is both the son of man and the son of God. He's the greatest man who ever lived, and he's also God's, well, God himself, right? He's fully man and fully God. And at Christmas, we see these two things brought together. The fullness of God comes down and enters into the world as a baby. He takes on all that it means to be human without giving up all that it means to be God. I was teaching my kids about this this week, and we went, I said, this is called the hypostatic union. This is what it's like in my house. This is called the hypostatic union. Repeat after me, and I'm not going to make you do that. Right? But it's this idea that this, this, this union of, of, of fully man, fully God is brought together and is somehow held together. And when we read our Bibles, we're like, I don't really know. How do I? It's a paradox. You're not supposed to be able to fully understand it. It's supposed to blow your mind. It's supposed to be like, oh man, this is hard to believe because this is so... Yeah, that is what God is doing here. All the glory of God existed in this tiny, helpless baby. All the preeminence has been condensed down into an infant in a manger dependent on his parents. And so at Christmas, we see the great juxtaposition where absolute power is made needy, where the weakest person in the nativity scene is actually the strongest. And so we need to learn to see the glory of this rather simple, mundane moment. And we learn by taking a cue from the angels. Right In the Christmas story, the angels appear in the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. They understand how grand this moment is even before Jesus lives his life and completes what he came to do. They know who he is, though he looks small and insignificant at the time. Now, 2,000 years later, we understand this moment because of all that has come from it. Right? The ripple effects that are sent out from Bethlehem. Right? This moment changed the world. And I've always loved how Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes the change of Bethlehem. He said, The love that descended to Bethlehem is not easy sympathy, but a burning fire whose light chases away every shadow, floods every corner, and turns midnight into noon. This love reveals sin and overcomes it. It conquers darkness with such forcefulness and intensity that it scatters the proud, humbles the mighty, feeds the hungry, and sends the rich away empty-handed. What he's getting at is that the power of God coming into flesh leaves nothing unchanged. It's the source of our redemption. It flips over our understanding of power and value. It provides a hope for us that overcomes all the doubt and despair that this world dishes out. 
And so may we never become so complacent about the incarnation that it can be overshadowed by cookies, parties, and gifts. No, this is the moment when the eternal came into the temporary in order to rescue what was his. This is the moment that all of human history hinges on. Now, as Paul continues here, he shifts from the nature of Christ now to the work that he accomplished. What is it that he came to do? He says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Through him all things were created. It's through Jesus that everything came to be. Now, this section is really an echo of John chapter 1 which is another poetic description um, of Jesus. And this is what it says in John 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In both of these descriptions, what we see is the Father and the Son together in relationship, sharing in the act of creation. Now, the reason why they're so focused on this is because of the time that they're writing, um, there was uh, this heresy known as Gnosticism, and, and one of the Gnostic teachings was that, is that Jesus was a created being, that he was simply made to represent God. Uh, a later version of this called modalism taught that Jesus was simply a mode of God, just the way that God chose to show himself to the world. So instead of three separate persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, they would say that the Trinity is, is, is three different ways in which, Jesus, or in which God revealed himself to the world. Jesus then is just a version of God, just a piece of his glory. This belief that would then teach that the mode of God that we see in creation is one mode. The God that we see in Jesus is another mode. The work that we see in the Holy Spirit is a third mode. So the three persons of the Trinity are not in relationship, working together since the beginning. They're sort of different masks that God puts on. And so when Paul and John write here, they want to make it very clear, no. They kind of confront this head on. They show that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit existed together since the beginning. And they are working together in dynamic relationship in order to create the world and accomplish the plan of God. So the world was not created apart from Jesus, like God setting the stage for the work of the Son. No, the Son was actively involved in every aspect of creation. Paul says it was created through him. I think this idea of cooperation is summed up beautifully by the second century theologian Irenaeus who referred to the Son and the Spirit as sort of the hands by which God the Father does the work of creating. And it was not just a spiritual world that was created. The Gnostics wanted to separate the spiritual and the physical world. And so Paul goes, it's everything. Every part of our experience, our understanding of what exists, was made through Jesus. In heaven and on earth, he says, visible and invisible, and as a slight nod to the Roman Empire, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, he is over all of it. All things were created through him. And then he says, but also for him. The world exists and comes to its fullest in the gospel in the life and work of Jesus. 
And so the whole world, its creation and its existence are for his glory. This means that we have been created specifically to glorify Jesus. That is the purpose of our lives. We exist for no higher purpose than to worship him. So to get back to the beginning, you have no responsibility to create meaning that has been taken off your shoulders. You are created with a purpose to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And not just you and I, but everything. This whole world was put together to reveal the glory of God and to direct all worship to him. And so at the first Christmas, as Jesus is born, we're seeing the moment when all that God has been planning is coming to fruition. The whole world was set up to build toward and then flow from this moment. So as we reflect on this moment in history, we should see it as just packed with energy. Right? In the same way that all the glory of God was contained in a baby, all the purpose and meaning of creation was condensed into a night. And so to sit and wonder is to reflect on what all of this vibrancy means for us. All of this power and glory that we're talking about, what does that mean for our everyday lives? How are we supposed to turn this into something that we can actually respond to? Well, there's a lot of ways of answering that question. Um, I'm going to focus on three. Um, The first thing that I want to say is this leads us to humility. In Philippians 2, 5 through 7, Paul uses the incarnation as an example uh, for us to be humbled. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And so this act of Jesus setting aside the glory of heaven to be born in the likeness of men is used as a motivation for us to do the same. You should be humble because he was humble. But Paul is calling us to much more than just sort of this intellectual understanding of humility. He doesn't just want us to be humble. He wants us to be humbled. Because Jesus is not just an example of emptying yourself and serving others. He's our Savior. We are the ones who are served by his action. We are the ones who receive because he chose to set aside. And so we shouldn't just look to Jesus as sort of an idea or or an example of how to respond. We should first be overwhelmed by what he has done for us. Our whole lives should then shift from the purpose being about us to the purpose being about him. Because the God of the universe has chosen to prioritize his creation to take on the struggle of humanity. He has done this in order to rescue us from the weight of sin that we put on ourselves. And this act of grace should bring us to our knees. That God would give up so much for you and I should make us uncomfortable. Think of David in the Psalms when he says, "Uh, What is man that you are mindful of him? Personalize that a little bit. Who am I, God? Who am I, God, that you would care at all? let alone give up so much for me. Now, on the other side of it, this humility then should give us this amazing sense of value. Because while Jesus' act of mercy doesn't really make sense, 
rationally. It happened. God really did give up all of this for us. And that infuses our life with all sorts of worth. My dad always says something is worth what people are willing to pay for it. Um, Now, this is because he resells uh, uh, junk. Um, And this phrase is usually meant by him that that thing isn't worth as much as you think it is when you look it up online. It's only worth as much as someone is willing to pay for it, right? But in this case, what gives our life such a high price is that Jesus was willing to pay such a high price for it. Our identity rises because of his humility. Christmas gives our life meaning by connecting us to the gift that was given. And so we should respond with humility, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because we're overcome with the grace that has been given to us. We have been purchased by what Christ has given. And so when we see our God, our Savior, as a helpless baby, it should amaze us. Because he didn't have to, but he chose to put himself in this place of vulnerability so that we could receive life. So the first way that Christmas adds to our life is by recasting who we are through the humility of Jesus. It gives us this new identity. The second thing that it does is it assures us of God's presence. Uh, the story of God being present with his people, a God who dwells with his people, is one of the major, major themes of Scripture. Uh, we see this at the very beginning where God creates uh, people in, they dwell in the presence of God. We see people sin and when they break off this relationship, they can no longer dwell in the presence of God. We see God come to a people and make a way for them to dwell in a mediated way with him through the tabernacle and later the temple. And all along the way, we see God interacting with and acting for his people. Now, as the first Christmas approached, his people had not heard from him for 400 years. They've been waiting. And when Jesus appears, he's declaring loudly that God will be with his people. And not just in a mediated way. He will dwell fully and completely with his people in his presence. The end of this story is described for us in Revelation 21.3, where it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That is God dwelling perfectly with his people for eternity. That is what we should be looking forward to. Now until then, God has promised us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will dwell in the the hearts of his people. He will be with us through everything. And this is how Jesus fulfills his promise to the disciples um, at the Great Commission where he says, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Right? "I I will be with you. You will never be out of my presence. Now, the difficulty for us is that sometimes it feels more like we are the Israelites in those 400 years of silence, right? We have the Bible, we have the Spirit with us, um, but man, sometimes it's like, God, give me something. Give me something more. I need to hear you. I need to feel you. I I need to see you. In a sense, though, this has already been given. And while we wait for Jesus to come again, we should be able to look back and gain a great assurance from his first coming. Because when we look at the baby in the manger, it's both a fulfillment and a promise. 
It's a promise that God will do all that he has said. Because the miraculous nature of a mother's pregnancy, his mother's pregnancy, the paradox of the hypostatic union, right? All of these are signs that are pointing us to the fact that God can overcome everything, anything and everything, to accomplish his plan. With this, we can be sure that he is working in everything, weaving together all the threads of history to reveal his grace and to redeem his people. And so the second way that Christmas adds to our life is by revealing God's presence in our lives, by reminding us that He is here even when we don't feel it. We are not our own. God dwells with His people. This brings us to the third way that Christmas informs our life. That is, it provides a basis for hope. Uh, Now, traditionally, the first week of Advent is the week of hope, Um, It's where you usually look back through God's unfolding plan. You look at all the ways that he was with his people. Um, You see his faithfulness over and over again. And it's a reminder that uh, God has acted before. And that gives reason for us to hope that he will act again. But we need to be sure. right? We need to know that God is powerful enough to deal with what we're going through. Not just that he can. But there's people here dealing with family and relational strife. There are those of you here with health issues, some with financial strain, those carrying grief, trauma, those dealing with depression, anxiety, and those who are just overwhelmed with the burdens of life. Right? All of you come in here with all of these things, trying to figure out, how am I going to carry this? How am I going to get through this? Looking for hope in the midst of what feels overwhelming. And the only way to not fall into despair is to to be able to imagine that things could be different. That there is something that could happen that could change all of these things that at this moment seem insurmountable. And Christmas provides that for us. Because with the baby in the manger, God shows us that he is preeminent. And he does this not by showing us his strength like he did in the Old Testament, he doesn't just, just show us that he could, if he used all of his muscles, defeat anything. But he can even overcome the world through weakness. 1 Corinthians 1.25 tells us the weakness of God is stronger than men. And I think about this all the time. Right? The weakness of God is stronger than anything this world can put on you. To be hopeful, we have to believe that God is actually going to do what he promises. And by using a young mother, a baby, and some shepherds to turn the world upside down, God is making it clear to us that he can do as he pleases with whatever is in front of him. And while we live this life and we look around and we aren't sure why he allows some things or why he doesn't make the end come more quickly... What we can be sure of as we ponder Christmas is that God will accomplish his plan. He will do everything that he has promised, and he is doing it now. And so we can live with the hopeful confidence of people who will dwell with our Savior forever. And as Jesus was nearing the end of his time on earth, he gave his disciples a way to hold on to this hope, 
a tangible reminder of all of these promises. And he gave it to them in communion. In communion, we hold on to who Jesus is and what he did as we anticipate him coming again in glory. So as you come to the table this morning, I encourage you to come in wonder. Take the bread and the juice, the body and blood of our Savior, and let the assurance that Jesus is with you, that he is preeminent, be the foundation for your hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much just for the ways in which you work. The fact that, that all that you do is layered so that we can wonder and we can ponder and we can study it and not get anywhere close to the depth that you have provided. We thank, the, thank you that you have saved us, but even more that you have saved us in the way that you have. That you have provided for us uh, things to hold on to, reasons for hope. That you displayed yourself in weakness in a way that we can connect to. That you gave us an image in Jesus that we can relate to. God, time and time again, you not only do what needs to be done, but you do it in such a way to build us up. And so I pray that you would help us to see that. I pray that you not only give us the things to hold on to, but that you help us to hold on. Because it's easy for us to get distracted both by the good things and by the bad. By the things in life that add flavor and the things that quickly lead us to despair. And so in all of it, God, I pray that you would make your gospel bigger, that you would make your truth more powerful in our lives so that we can see that we have everything that we need to accomplish the purpose that you created us for. Thank you, God, for not only giving us a reason, but for giving us all the strength to hold on to it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.